I call it the gateway drug to club fitting. Well, why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> This might be the last time I say it, but this is episode 14. Probably don't need to say 14 anymore, do we? I I mean, not the number, but the way you said that was so ominous. Like, this is the last episode. I'm out of here. I'm dying, guys. Oh, no, not funny. (laughs) No. It's it's episode 14, though. Maybe we don't need numbers now. Once we hit 15, we're good. Okay. Fits with the Founders, episode 14. Uh, I'm your founder, Nick Sherburn, and I'm here with Cassie. Hello. So, we got a fun, uh, fun podcast today. We're kicking off our big uh, September putter fitting promo month. Yes. Putter fitting month. So what does that mean? That is free. Nick has no idea. He just shrugged. (laughs) I mean, I kind of know. I I know we're giving away putter fittings if you buy a putter. There you go. But if you buy a putter shaft, that counts too, right? Correct. Yeah. So if you, if you upgrade your putter shaft and we install it for you, that also counts, which is kind of a new thing. We didn't really do that last year, but putter shaft technology wasn't as big of a deal when we did this last year. So, but second annual putter fitting month, um, free putter fitting with the purchase of putter during the month of September, uh, get your flat stick fitted. And so why I lead with that is because our interview today is going to be with Sean Toulon, who is the senior vice president of Callaway and the GM of Odyssey. Uh, uh, Pretty big deal. Long time industry guy. We'll get into that later, but uh, really going to bring us some insights on his history and also putters. Yeah. So it's awesome. And we, I mean, we love putters. We always say it's the most important fitting because you use that, that one club on every hole. So we're here for it. I call it the gateway drug to club fitting. Why? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard you say that. Oh, I say it all the time on XM Radio and I say, and here's why. Because a lot of people are intimidated by club fitting. We know that. We've been fighting it. Your marketing team is always fighting that, right? The intimidation. It's intimidating. It's too expensive. It's all these things. And I go, okay, well, putter fitting is this like, 45 minute to an hour long process. Uh, it's $100, so it's not a ton of money to get a fit. And then it could be a tweak of your putter. It could be getting a new putter, but even a new putter, what, 200 to $400 range. So it's not the most expensive way to get in. And I always tell people, it's the quickest way to save strokes. It's 40% of your game, you use it on every hole. So you're gonna see an instant change in your putting and your scoring ability after a putter fitting. So I always say it's this gateway drug that if you're kind of questionable on club fitting, get your putter fit first. It's really gonna make you a believer in club fitting. All right, that checks out. Maybe, maybe I have heard that. Yeah. <laughs> it's the gateway drug. It is, that's And great. then you get on to heroin and crack and then you move on from there. Okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do not condone. Um, so we do have, uh, last time we talked to you guys, we had an announcement. We have another one. You guys, we have another announcement. Um, This one's big. I'm just going to dive right into it because there have been social posts to support this, also press releases and whatnot. But uh, Club Champion signed Bryson DeChambeau as a brand ambassador. Pretty big deal. I would say yes. Pretty controversial. I would also say yes. (laughs) I would say yes. So it's funny. And she's laughing a little bit because she's like, you know, of everybody on the the club champion team, I might have been the one that was like, we're going to sign Bryson. Now, because I was kind of like, why don't we sign somebody else? And why can't you get behind Bryson? It's not that I'm not behind Bryson because I actually think Bryson fits. I've been talking about it all week on the radio is our brand perfectly, which is let's think outside the box. Mm -hmm. Let's let performance be the first thing in your mind, not just following the trends, right? Bryson breaks every trend, breaks every mold, and it's all about performance. So I totally get it. I just think sometimes he does interesting things that I can't agree with. 
I'm personally a Bryson fan, so when I was able to kind of negotiate this with Bryson's team and whatnot, it was really exciting for me. But I also think that at the end of the day, somebody whose entire persona is built around equipment, it's better, it's faster, it's longer, it's it's all of the things that you know people come to us to kind of seek out. I just it doesn't no one else makes more sense. A hundred percent agree with that, and I love the way he plays golf in the sense that some of the lines he takes, the way he does it, it really showcased this past weekend, right? Like him hitting driver when Canale's hitting like six irons, things like that. Like, I love it. I, I think that's all great. And I'll, here, here's the newsflash to you. With four holes left to play, I put 100 on Bryson to win. For the BMW. Just for the for BMW. You, Sorry. Yeah, yeah BMW. <laughs> um, I, I really honestly, now I'm, I'm a Bryson. I'm on the Bryson train. He's 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 pushing us um, and, and I like it. So I put the 100. Now, he ultimately did not come through with me, but I really thought he was. I mean, that was that was some pretty incredible golf and then six-hole playoff. Oh, my, it's the best playoff golf I've watched in probably ever, I think, which might be a hot take, but I I was screaming at the TV. There's been a lot of good playoffs this year. That was a really good one. Both players were just slugging it out. Um, and Bryson had plenty of chances to close it out. He'll close it out again. Uh, I saw him post a bunch of stuff on social about yeah. getting better, and uh, that is the, one of the big reasons why I think, you know, I'm getting more uh in tune with Bryson is, I think I'm misunderstanding him a touch. I think he's just so driven to success that sometimes he he forgets what he's saying. Probably. I might yeah. have that problem sometimes too, so. But do you forget or do you just actively not care? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I think probably the consensus would be actively not care, yeah, but yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and he he had a pretty incredible, so aside from the six-hole playoff, which was just awesome golf, like anybody who says golf is boring needs to watch those moments and those clutch putts. Like, it is incredible. But he also nearly bagged a 59. Yeah. Which, I mean, oh my God. Well, you think about it. I mean, Bryson's got to be kicking himself. There was about, what, three six-footers that cost him uh, 59 and then winning that tournament. Yeah, correct. So I bet you he spent a lot of time practicing those six-footers. For sure, for sure. And, I mean, that's that's the way he is. Like, as soon as he messes something up when he's on the range after the tournament, he's the one practicing until dark because they he showed cares. him practicing after the 60. Yeah, yeah. Which Would- is... That's awesome. I mean, come on, guy. <laughs> well, so he's got a good chance at winning this FedEx this week, with mm-hmm. the tour championship coming up this weekend. Um, I still don't. I was joking with you before we started this. I still don't know if I understand the whole minus 10 head start for Cantlay and then what? Bryson's at seven. minus seven. Yeah. I, I don't know if I still understand all that, but. it's Well, it's different than the uh, original points. When I first was getting into golf, the way that they laid out the playoff point system was completely different than this. So I'm a little confused this year, too. But yeah. I, it just gives you a head start. It just means that you're ahead of the field because you earned it over the course of the season. I get it. I don't know if it works for me, but I get it. Did they earn it over the course of the season or, or over the course of the playoffs? Well, okay, I don't know. Yeah. They need like a, you know what they should do is maybe they should have like a FedEx cup for dummies, <laughs> like an episode that you can watch where it explains this like very, very cleanly so that we could all understand it. I, I condone this. I would absolutely love to produce that. We're yeah. going to have time with Bryson. Maybe he can break it down for us. Yeah. That'd be fun. He, yeah, it would be fun. Yeah. So he's, so he's our new brand ambassador. We'll be seeing a little bit more with Bryson and talking a little more about him. Um, this gives us obviously opportunity 
opportunities to talk more about um, equipment and performance-driven elements that, you know, we're always really big into that, but working with Bryson gives us more of an opportunity to open that up. So we're super excited. Um, speaking of our brand ambassadors, so Lexi Thompson is also a club champion brand ambassador. She's got some news. Yeah, it's Solheim Cup this week. Yeah, and she's awesome. So I'm excited. Yeah, I'm hoping the uh, U.S. can bring it. I, uh, I'm i not completely sure um, how I feel about the Ryder Cup yet. We'll have to wait until the team's fully done. Mm. But the Solheim Cup looks pretty good for the U.S. to take it. I, I would agree. I mean, we've got Nelly on there. I mean, everybody that you would expect is is on there. And like Lexi's such a great team player. Like even in the Olympics, you know, obviously she didn't bring it home like we would have liked her to. But she's so positive and every, she's like a great role model for everybody, too. And I feel like the same thing translates to this. Yeah, we'll be rooting hard for uh, Lexi this week. Yeah. And then in just a few weeks, like you mentioned, we have the Ryder Cup. We've only got as of recording, we've only got six names. Bryson is one of them. Um, and then our other brand ambassador, Jim Furyk, is a vice captain. So we've got a lot of club champion love happening. Well, and Spieth looks like pretty good to get in there. He's close. He's, I think he's seventh on the list right now, I think. So we'll see. I think that gets what is, when does that get finalized? This week? Yeah, after this week. Yeah. Yeah. So So as of recording, we don't know, but when you guys hear this, there might be some, some captain's picks and other lists out there. We'll see. Um, My, my kind of the one that I'm questioning is, is Ricky Fowler, if he'll be a captain's pick, because he's always the one that gets picked, even if he doesn't earn his way on. So I'm curious. I, I mean, I like Ricky, but so do I. I don't think you could put him on there. Really? No. I mean, even for he, like the morale. I guess you're gonna need it. There was some. There was some gif or gif or meme out there. He will never learn how to pronounce that correctly. No, <laughs> but it was pretty amazing. I, I want to find it because they were talking about it, and they were uh, they were talking about like the Ryder Cup and how we're kind of already screwed oh, a man. little bit. I don't know if I buy um, that. I mean, Team Europe is pretty stacked. I'm not going to lie. Like, I, Well, I also think it comes down to a little bit of just how the U.S. is built. Like, we're not really used to team mm-hmm. game where I believe Europe plays by the, you know, a little bit better by that. Mm-hmm. Well, it, and you've got, you've already got like internal feuds because Brooks Kepka and Bryson are both on it. They said they're going to set it aside though, and I believe them. So I think, but I also think that going into the tournament, having that kind of like fire also helps. Like they are a hundred percent going to be paired together. So <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, this is just, I'm throwing it out there. I, I'm not taking a side, but I saw this meme by somebody. I'm sure a lot of our listeners, if you're on social, you saw it. So they, it was a, somebody put this tweet out there. So just to clarify the Ryder Cup team, Brooks and Bryson hate each other. Canale and Bryson hate each other. Brooks and DJ hate, hate each other. And if he makes a miraculous recovery from an, uh, ammonia, Reed hates everyone and everyone hates him. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, they're not wrong. No. Well, again, I'm not taking sides, but it does slightly concern me because we need to rally the troops, right? Yeah. Well, I think mm, I think this is kind of like the Olympics where when you've kind of got the flag on your back, you figure your life out. But I also think that that fuels the fire to a certain extent because it was kind of what they were talking about at the BMW championship. Like Bryson made a comment to Patrick and everybody was like, oh, it's personal now, which it wasn't. Patrick flat out said it wasn't. But it kind of gives you a little bit of a drive to be like, no. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it well. So I feel like that might help. Yeah. I, I, let's all hope that they can overcome in the United States because, what, we haven't won one in a couple of years. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. So. I need to do it. Europeans have some hot players right now. So they, I mean, to, John Rom. Yeah. Come on now. To, 
We need to do that. In other news on the PGA Tour uh, that's out there is Phil's beef with the USDA on the potential issue of drivers longer than 46 uh, inches. I'm so here for this. Yeah, I, I don't understand why the USGA cares. And I'm going to go into a couple of things. I thought Graham McDowell put a nice thing out there that says, well, if you're looking at that, why can't why why aren't we looking at putters being longer than 36 inches? You know, all that. And it was funny as I was, you know, trying to think about this and my brain already said I, I don't um, I don't agree with this because I don't understand why. I mean, if 46 inch drivers really helped everybody play better, everybody would play 46 inch drivers. Correct. So as a club fitter, I know that. So I'm like, this is just kind of dumb and just kind of takes certain people out of the equation. Like it doesn't really change the game. So then after this weekend and the BMW tournament, Obviously, Chicago doesn't have a tournament right now. We've talked about that, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the BMW last year was in Chicago at Olympia Fields. And this year it was out in Maryland and it was at Caves Valley. And so here was an interesting thing I read, and I think it really hits to the point on this. So the field for the BMW went 772 under par this week at Caves Valley. Last year's field at Olympia Fields went 505 over par. Mm -hmm. That's 1,207 shot difference in four rounds of golf by the top 70 ranked players in the world without any changes in equipment or ball. The only variable were the course and conditions. Mike Whoever put that together, that's my point. That the course plays a bigger role. Uh, I, the course, definitely. And we have a way of rating and sloping and doing all this stuff to golf courses. We need to make a better issue uh, or a bigger issue out of what tees people play, what conditions people play, that kind of stuff, particularly the best players in the world. Forget about us weekend warriors or whatever. We we, we have enough issues to worry about. Like, don't <laughs> don't don't put more restrictions on us. But when you're looking at what the you know, the players trust me, you're trying. Some people want to see birdies. Some people want to see pars. And that's why you put certain golf courses in and certain golf courses. But don't try to talk about the equipment. Like to me, that's just I, after 23 years, I've seen enough of this fooling around with all this stuff that's like, yeah, you know. I, and I liked Phil's reasoning because some of his backup to it was, aside from the fact that the USGA just doesn't need to be meddling just as a governing body, which is a whole nother conversation. But I think that there's some merit to him saying that it encourages shorter, more violent swings. Um, it basically kind of eliminates the idea that golfers can have a different body type. So like when you put Dustin Johnson next to anyone who's shorter than Dustin Johnson. Like you have a two completely different body types and someone who's taller is going to potentially need a longer driver or whatever. Like it might not just be about performance. It might be about the safety of your swing and how your body works. So I kind of agree with Phil in that sense where it's like, yeah, we're talking about lengthening drivers for more length because Bryson's doing it or whatever, but there's more to it. Like it's not that black and white. No, it's, it's not. And it, it, to me, if they do this, it's just total, somebody got it in their britches and they, they want to be the smartest person in the room and they want to be the best and they want their legacy on this for some reason, which this is weird. This feels like anchoring. Like this feels like when there was a huge debate over anchoring putters. And while anchoring actually kind of makes sense one way or another, like why you would want to ban that or not ban it, this kind of feels very much like that conversation. Agree. I, I don't know. Um, there is some argument that that non-anchoring changed. But what it did is it changed like a handful of people's ability to make money on the PGA Tour. Basically. Yeah. Didn't change anything else. I was going to say, Adam Scott's still doing OK. Not as OK. Yeah. But he's still doing Web OK. Simpson. Yeah. Webb's another good example. Yeah. I mean, they, so I, I <laughs> seem like a pretty big rule to just blanket make a couple of people struggle in life. Like, yeah. Well, and that's what this is going to be. I think there are more people that are using drivers that are locked. Like Phil, I think is 47 and a half. Bryson, obviously Bryson's not playing with a 48 inch, but that's what he was like messing around with for a while. Like a lot of people are playing with longer drivers, but not just because they're trying to cheat the system. So I don't know. I don't, the USGA needs to 
get their life together. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I agree. I think they need to focus on the golf course. Agreed. So we're gonna we're gonna shift our focus actually to our interview for today, which is Sean Toulon. He's the senior vice president of Callaway. We're gonna talk to him about his history in the industry, where he came from, where he ended up, and then talk a little bit more about putter fitting month. So we're here with Sean Toulon, the senior vice president of Callaway, but uh, not getting into too formal. Also, a longtime friend of mine in the golf industry. And with quite a, uh, I don't know how you put it, a, uh, a, a resume. Past. Yeah, his resume is huge. Yeah, I mean, uh, Sean's kind of seen it, done it, been there, and redone it again. And Sean, thanks for visiting with us today. So nice to be here with you guys. Hope you're doing well, Nick. Cassandra, nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. We were super excited to bring you on. One, because as Nick just mentioned, you guys are friends, but also this is our first podcast um, in putter fitting month. So we were like, obviously we need to bring somebody on whose name is on putters. I think that's perfect. (laughs) Well, I fit that bill, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I'll actually dive in with the first question. Um, I just, can you give our listeners a very kind of brief overview of your history in the industry? Um, not necessarily just at Callaway, but your entire background so they can kind of get a feel for where you came from and where you ended up. Sure. Well, I came, um, came from just up the road from you guys. I was born and raised in Madison, Wisconsin. And I think like so many people, Cassandra, my age, at least we grew up you know, um, in catting and just kind of hanging around the game. And, um, as I went through school and went through college, which was at university of Wisconsin in Madison, um, I knew I, I wanted to stay in golf. I didn't exactly know how, uh, but I started with this little upstart company in 1981, uh, 82 actually called TaylorMade golf. And at the time TaylorMade was about $10 million in sales. Uh, and my job was to sell metal woods to people that preferred to buy wood woods. So <laughs> that was not that easy. Um, and anyways, I, I did a couple of sort of entrepreneurial things along the way, uh, went back to TaylorMade in uh, 2000 and was in charge of all the product there. And I think when I retired in 2015, we were doing just short of 1.8 billion. So it was, oh. it was a heck of a run. It was, it was amazing. Anyways, I ended up, uh, here at Callaway, which I never ever thought would happen. Uh, and I've enjoyed it's five years now. So I've enjoyed every minute of it. So if golf has been great, uh, the game is awesome. But I think for me, as much as, as the equipment and all of that, I fell in love with the game and the people that, that played the game and the business of golf guys like Nick and, and, uh, it's just been a real passion for me. That's awesome. Something. So I think Nick probably knew this, but something I didn't know um, prior to doing a little research before our podcast was that you went to the University of Wisconsin for agricultural economics. I don't understand (laughs) how that equates to golf. Is that just another passion for you or how did that work? Oh, agricultural? No, (laughs) no. (laughs) So that's Cassandra. That's where you went if you um, really struggled in calculus and couldn't get into the business school. You changed (laughs) your major (laughs) and and you went into this. And I knew I was there because half the football team was in most of my classes then. Um, (laughs) 
and uh, and I I actually was a star student, so um, it was fun. But I I went to school to you know to learn and and you know for the experience of it and um, the egg econ part of it was interesting. I've always been very interested in in business and uh, the economics part of it was was great for me. So and I could do that and work at the same time. So back then. Um, I was an assistant golf pro in Madison, a teaching pro. So, um, you know, I wanted to be able to do that as I went through through school. So that allowed me to do everything. Okay, that makes more sense. (laughs) I got it. Um, Nick, so do you want to do you want to kind of dive into, you know, your experience in the golf industry and, and working with Sean and kind of seeing his name associated with some of the biggest brands that everybody, you know, is knows and recognizes? Well, I mean, you know, for me, when I first met Sean would have been his TaylorMade days. And, you know, to watch uh, Sean and the team there at TaylorMade, you guys had quite a team. I think you were the you guys, your team would have been the first team to really take a golf company from what we thought the market was and then quadruple that. And I mean, that was probably something I think that was an eye opening thing for just about everybody, including the company you now work for. And you know, what, what, I guess to me, what was it, what was the turning point at TaylorMade where you guys were like, you know, we, the market may say we're this, we're going to that. Well, I, I think we never believed what, what the marketplace or what people that thought they knew the marketplace was telling us. And, um, you know, it was, it was a really magical time because most of the people that were, you know, in, involved on the executive team, we were all about the same age. I'd known Mark King because we were sales reps together in the early 80s. Um, and, you know, we all were a- around the same age. We had kids that, you know, were, you know, doing the same things. And, you know, we just had so much in common, but we just believed that anything was really possible. I learned that because I got hired on way, way long ago uh, at TaylorMade by Gary Adams, the founder, uh, for, and the company was based just just right next to you almost in McHenry. And, and Gary really did believe that if you put your mind to it, you could do extraordinary things. And, you know, that really, um, that really stuck with me. And Mark King was the same way. And Mark was just an incredible leader. So we just, we didn't believe that, um, that the answer could ever be no. And, um, and we thought we had better ideas than others, whether we did or not, it didn't matter. We thought we did. And, uh, we were hell bent on, on changing things. And, um, it was a very magical time. It was something I'll look back on very fondly for forever. I think, uh, not that I want to divulge from the company you live at or you work at now. And cause we're going to certainly talk about that plenty, but I think the listeners would love it. Would you say there was a certain turning point at uh, TaylorMade that really propelled you? And what was that look or technology? Well, I would say there was a couple um, that were, were super important. Um, so when I came back, in in 2000, uh, my job was to uh, I was in charge of product, and before that, Nick, I don't know if you'll even remember this, but I had founded a, a little company in the early 90s called Zevo Golf, and and it was um, it was the, the first company to really take fitting um, and and begin to really attach um, technology to sort of collecting data. Um, and I had sold that. And, and anyways, I, I ended up back at TaylorMade because Mark hired me. So, um, one of the things that I really felt was important was how we could bring custom fitting, um, really to the mass. And the, the first project 
that I worked on was like day one, which was January 3rd, 2000 was the 300 series. Um, and I remember writing the product plan uh, because it was done on July, on January 11th. And it was basically one size fits none. And that if we were really going to reclaim and TaylorMade was really lost at this point, I think we had 27 staff members uh, paid to play our driver on the PGA tour. And every week our average count was seven, which meant 20 people were violating their contract and sneaking around with a Callaway or a Titleist or, or something else. So that, you know, you have a product problem, but um, the 300 series was basically going after the marketplace in three big buckets, somebody, and, and we didn't really have launch monitors and we didn't really know about high launch, low spin and COR and things like we did now. It was all just sort of coming together at the time, but we knew we needed one that launched high uh, with very little spin, that became the 360. We needed something that launched low with low spin. That was the 300. And then we needed something in between, which is the 320, which is kind of a mid-launch, mid-spin. If you looked at it, the marketplace was really divided into three buckets. A Titleist driver, a ping uh, driver, which was the TIE SI. Titleist was a 975D. And um, it was a Hawkeye driver from from Callaway. These were better performing uh, drivers in each of those three buckets. And when we launched that, um, it was really a, oh my God, you know, everybody knew TaylorMade was going to launch a new driver. Nobody expected us to launch three. So that changed the world for us. And then the final one that I think really put us on the map as the technical leader uh, for a long, long time was the uh, the R7 quad, the first one with movable weight, which um, that, that that just changed the game totally. I also think uh, when when he went to the started playing with the colors, the white driver, I would have, been a big have one said the well. white driver probably. What? Sorry to interrupt you, Nick, but what the white driver did, you know, every every week, TaylorMade had sixty four drivers in player, about forty percent of the count. And as a salesman, if you went out and told your customers that you did that for five years, it just it has no impact. It's just a number. But when they all turned white and then you saw, oh, my God, all of these guys are playing this driver. It looked like every week the PGA Tour like a, looked like a like a tailor-made sales meeting. Um, and it was incredible. And, and you know, that's what really did, to your point, propel us from being, you know, a company that was doing five or six hundred million to something that was well over a billion. So uh, agreed. And I mean, uh, to, I, to be in the industry and watch that happen, it was brilliant. And I mean, something so simple as a color change just yeah. totally changed the, the way people looked at golf clubs and ultimately what happened with TaylorMade. Well, Nick, so that's your favorite thing, though. You love it when you can actually like look on tour and, and notice somebody for something different. So if you could have your way, everybody would have mullets and mustaches. So it's basically the club <laughs> equivalent of that. That is true. I think all PGA Tour players look the same and we need to change that. <laughs> you well, you got one with Cameron Smith. Yeah, well, right. That's that's the point. Yeah, the Cameron Smith. I love it. <laughs> you know, love or hate Bryson DeChambeau, you can pick him out in the lineup, right? And so yeah, um, I love that. Yeah. So, so moving on, you know, I, I think what's also it's cool, and this is where the story I really want to get going is, is, you know, Taylor May gets these heights and there's a change and a lot of the, the guard leave, including yourself, you retire. And yeah. I love how Cassie and Danny put it in the notes. You kind of pulled a Michael Jordan move where you <laughs> immediately unretired after a week of retiring from TaylorMade 
and started a company uh, under your namesake with your sons. And so yeah. tell us about that. I think that's really what people want to know now is the Toulon Putter brand and how that kind of came about. And then ultimately how Toulon got engaged with Callaway and Odyssey to where you are today. Yeah, well, the um, the whole um, Toulon thing was 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 pretty crazy. It was just so amazingly coincidental. So um, early on, when I first moved out here, for some, somehow, some way, um, the the first guy that I really became friends with, and this is now thirty five years ago, uh, was Scotty Cameron. And um, we played all kinds of golf together. And, you know, we just became very, very close friends. And uh, as we, you know, went our separate ways and worked for competitive companies, as you might imagine, that can put a strain on casual dinners and things like that. So, we, you know, we sort of lost contact with, an, with one another. And um, like the second or third phone call I got um, when news of, of my retirement came out was from Scotty and he invited me to play golf. And um, so I went and played golf with him. This was, this was literally like five days after I was done and uh, we're playing, we had a wonderful time playing. And, uh, and it, it, I, I asked him a question and said, well, you know, what are you going to do when you're done? What happens to the, you know, what happens to Cameron? Because he, he's got he's got a couple of girls which are not interested in in golf, really. And and he said, you know what? I, I don't really know that. And I swear to God, this is the God's honest truth. I got home that night and uh, two of my three boys, I have three kids, uh, but Tony is the oldest and Joe is the middle one. I came home and as soon as I walked in the door, they went and got me a beer and said, hey, we, we want to talk to you about something. OK, what do you want to talk about? I thought they crashed a car or something um, <laughs> and uh, said, what do you think about starting? Starting a putter company. I said, do, do what? Starting a putter company. Well, um, go ahead. And so they, they laid out this whole idea of, of Toulon design and, and, you know, attacking the high end of the market. And I said, you know, do you have any idea I played with Scotty today? <laughs> and it was just, it was amazing. So anyways, um, about uh, a month later, uh, we were ready to, to get the company started and, and we started it. Um, I have a history of picking bad days to to found companies. Um, Toulon Design was founded on April Fool's Day in 1992. Uh, Toulon Design <laughs> was September 11th, which we'll always remember, not for the right things, but uh, of 2015. And and uh, we started uh, down the road of putting a putter company together and uh, all the things that go with that and designing product and getting it right uh, and ready to go. We launched at the, at the PGA show uh, in January of 16. So that was, that was uh, an incredible amount of work done in a very short period of time. But, you know, when you've done this for as long as we have, Nick, you kind of know where the piles of dog poo are and, yeah. and can sidestep most of it. You get, you get dirty once in a while, but not too much and um, got ready to launch. And, you know, the kids did an unbelievable job and, and we launched and started shipping product a couple months after that. And we were rocking. And then, you know, how long did Toulon, I mean, that I know we got engaged at that time because, yep. you know, it seemed like a logical fit to carry Toulon putters at a club champion. You were all about uh, performance, technology, you know, fitting, all of that. So, you know, we, we, we did a partnership. What I don't remember, though, is how long was Toulon a, um, a thing before you merged with Callaway and Odyssey? 
about five months, Nick. And, and, you know, you guys were an unbelievable partner very, very early on, which, you know, you know, to do the business is one thing and that's nice, but to have a place like club champion really embrace um, what we were doing and, you know, both from a product standpoint, but philosophically uh, that was a huge boost of confidence for, for me and the kids. So um Hopefully I've thanked you in the past. And if I haven't, I'll do it again. Uh, but that wasn't a really important part of it. And then about three months later, um, I got a call from Harry Arnett, who I had worked with at TaylorMade and uh, asked uh, to have lunch. And um, about three days after that, I had lunch with Chip. And about a week after that, they had acquired the company and brought us in to not just run Toulon Design, um, but to also run all of Odyssey and, and, uh, take the industrial design over for all of the products. So in many ways, I'm doing what I did at TaylorMade, um, uh, which felt weird because Callaway was sort of always the arch enemy, but uh, I've really enjoyed my time here. That was actually going to be one of my questions is how it feels to sort of be on the other side of it. You know, you're basically with your competitor, at least who was the competitor in your formative years. So like, does that, does it still kind of feel weird for you or have you moved past that completely because you have such good relationships with everyone in the industry or how does that work for you? It was really weird at first, Cassandra, because right after we started, um, which was, I guess it was in September. Um, we had the first sales meeting, the, the first national sales meeting for for Callaway. And I got introduced and uh, was brought up to the big stage and and talk. And I was the first guy to speak. And the the warm up act is, you know, you, as most sales meetings have a theme. And I, I and I think this was like, you know, tackle the or it was something about challengers and champions or something. But before I got up there, they had two boxers and they were fighting each other in a, in a boxing ring in front of me. And one guy had tailor-made shorts on and the other guy had Callaway shorts on. Oh, and the no. Callaway guy, it was like a UFC moment with just pummeling this tailor-made guy. And so I got up there and I said, I said, I just, I, I just want to apologize. I had no idea that's how you felt about me. So, <laughs> oh no! So, um, but it was um, it was it was interesting. But there were just so many incredible differences um, of the companies, and TaylorMade was changing. Mark was gone, and you know David and all the guys there have done an unbelievable job. But but you know uh, really the guys I grew up with. Uh, to your point, Cassandra, my formative years you know, we were all getting a little bit older and, and, and moving on and it was going to be a different place. So it was a good time, I think, for me to move on. And I never thought I'd ever, ever end up at Callaway, but um, I have a lot of friends here now and uh, it's a really different atmosphere. And I feel like I can really make a difference, which hopefully I have. And, and that's, that's what gets me excited and every day anyways. Well, okay. That's perfect. And now that you're at Callaway and Odyssey, what, I mean, what what has been the biggest change for you? Like, what have you been working on or what putter technology have you been working on? What is it that you see as the future? Like, give us a little insight of what you've been working on at Callaway Odyssey um, to really, you know, take that brand and take it to the next level. Well, I, I, there's so much. I mean, that's a big, big question, Nick. But I would say, um, number one, um, the whole idea of fitting for putters is way behind fitting for golf clubs. Um, and I think for a bunch of reasons, um, but we've really looked at 
especially as equipment, golf equipment and putters in particular, have become more and more expensive. What are the different things that we could do um, to, to really help that process and, and find performance in different ways? So, um, as you know, we've been very active in artificial intelligence and big data and, and looking um, really through a completely different lens because putters have really been – you know, almost not almost, they've definitely been more art than they have been science. And the art part of it um, is something that's very near and dear to my heart. But I also feel like it's really important, especially in putting, to bring more science into it. So using uh, tools like artificial intelligence to better understand golf shafts, to better understand inserts, to better understand um, hit location for golfers and stroke path for golfers and and things that are consistent and things that are inconsistent and what people can pick up on and what they can't. And, you know, there's just this massive, um, really sort of open road for us to, to, to take a car down and and learn about. Uh, I think it's been incredible. So I'd say we're at the very beginning of a really, really rich journey on, um, on really kind of formalized fitting and, and accelerating uh, performance for, for what putters can do for an individual golfer. I think a lot of people can think about Odyssey and they think about, uh, you know, some of the designs like a two ball or a Rossi or, you know, the, the, the inserts, whether it's the OG or any of the inserts, they always think about that with Odyssey. One of the things I think that's interesting is you guys, really you're the only brand still that I know of uh, that, that offer shaft technology in your putter. Why don't you tell, you know, I think listeners are still like really not sure what that does. Is there something to it? Is it gimmicky? Is it just feel like, how did you get to the stroke lab putter shaft and what are the benefits that the golfers are going to see? Well, the, uh, let me go first to the benefit. What they're going to see is a very, very measurable improvement in the consistency of the tempo of their stroke, which is hugely important. When I say a, a, a big difference, like a 20% improvement, Nick, geeks like me, I, I, I get all excited if I can tell you it's 2 or 3% better here or there. When I start to say 13, 14, 15, 20% better, that's totally unheard of. So um, the, the issue that that we really were after trying to solve was the overall weight of putters has just gotten so heavy. Um, you know, back in the day in the, in the eighties, let's say early eighties, when ping was really dominant in putters, um, their head weights were about 290 grams. Um, they used a steel shaft that weighed, it's actually the same steel that, that most people use today, weighed about 125 grams. And then they would use that little ping man grip, which weighed about 50 grams. But if you actually put that on a, um, on a swing weight machine and, and got a reading for a 35 inch putter, um, the, the, the swing weight was like C1 or B8 or B9 swing weights now, because green speeds have gotten heavier or have gotten faster back in the eighties, green speeds were, you know, eight or nine or, or, you know, if you ever heard 10, it was, Oh my God, I, I can't believe how fast they are. Now tour pros, they don't get nervous until they hear they're 15. But as these green speeds have gotten faster and faster and faster, head weights of putters have gotten really heavy in comparison. So I'm f- from like 290, 
30 years ago to 360 or even heavier now. The shaft hadn't changed. And and one other thing that did change was these foam-based large grips like a Super Stroke or some of these other ones um, have now, you know, they look big and heavy, but they actually only weigh about 50 grams. So actually... Um, the the way the the putter would be balanced is totally different, and the swing weights on these putters got to be like F four or F five. And I'm guessing, Nick, not many of our listeners here are playing a driver with an F five or F six swing weight. I wouldn't nope. think that would not uh, be happening. So what happened is the the whole putter just got totally out of balance. So we looked at what would we have to do to get a putter back in balance, knowing that head weights have to be heavier. Well, the the idea was let's take as much weight as we can out of the shaft. Let's make the shaft stiffer because the head weights are also so stiff that it would make the shaft or so heavy um, that it would make the shaft weak. So how do we get that so it would be more imbalanced and more stable? We made the shaft much lighter, about 40 grams lighter, uh, made it much stiffer and reduced the torque. And and that just opened up the floodgates uh, on improvement. And you see it every week now, Nick. I mean, we have worldwide, we must have 150 stroke lab shafts in play. Um, so it's far from a gimmick. And, and I can tell you uh, the, the development process that we have going on right now for new ideas and to where we go with stroke lab is very, very exciting. So you're going to see more, not less. Sean, I have, I have two questions in full disclosure. <laughs> Neither yes. one of them was on the initial list. So if we need to edit this out, we totally can. <laughs> um, but listening to you guys talk, it just brought two things up. So the first one is, is there anything in the current industry um, that's floating around right now or that's being marketed heavily by competitors or otherwise that you feel specifically with putters is just a straight up gimmick? Like it's a gimmick. It doesn't help, you know, your putting. It doesn't help your aim. It doesn't help anything. Do you feel like there's anything out there right now that is just gimmicky? Well, I, I think there's a lot of things that if you looked at it, it's a wonderful question, by the way. I think there's a lot of things that if you looked at it and said, if 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 you had to say this works for everybody, um, that's definitely not true because it doesn't. And with putters more so than any other piece of equipment. So, Cassandra, if I were to take a driver and that has got um, a weights that move and put a very heavy weight on the toe, almost everybody is going to hit that driver less left or more to the right um, because of that. And if I did the same thing with a putter, because it's such a slow speed swing and impact is so much less violent, it's easier for a golfer to overcome um, some sort of counterbalance or um, some sort of um, counterweighting um, that, that to say one fits all is totally not true, uh, which honestly that that goes right to what club champion is is founded on and that's getting people fitted for the right piece of equipment and it's really individualistic when it comes to putters so anything that's that says you know, this works for everybody. I would be highly skeptical of. I, that is the most diplomatic, like presidential answer. 
<laughs> that was that was very skillful. Um, I like it. I, I'm glad you didn't come out and just like you know pinpoint a competitor or something because we 100 percent would have had to edit that out. But that's that's a it's a great answer though. And the other this other question that I had for you is really it's not quite as you know there's not as much potential for controversy. But I'm just curious, do you have one um, putter design, whether it's a design that you've created or someone else in the industry at any time has created that you just love, like your absolute favorite putter design of all time? It's it's coming in January. Ooh, sneak peek. <laughs> now it would, it would, it would spoil everybody. Um, we, we have some things that are coming, um, in January that I think are just spectacular. So, um, and when I say, I think they're spectacular, the shapes are incredible. The technology is very, very different. Um, and, and it w- really sort of sets the, the stage for where we're taking Odyssey and Toulon and, and, and kind of pushing the, the performance story forward. So you guys will see them shortly, Nick, when uh, when we have um, our pre-lines with you. With you. Uh, but they'll be in um, club champion stores in, in January. I couldn't be more excited about it. So before we wrap this up, I think, I think one thing we should dive into as a uh, – Sean's been in the golf industry a long time. I've been in it a long time. And one of the great parts about being in the golf industry is a very small – a tight knit group. And, you know, when you like each other, you hang out and you do these things. And you guys hear me talk about my love for golf and golf gambling and sometimes drinking on the golf course. (laughs) Sean likes to drink wine at dinner and uh, he can drink some wine at dinner. Sean, why don't you tell the listeners, what is your favorite wine to drink? Well, it's not the manliest one, is it, Nick? (laughs) Uh, So, you know, I grew, I grew up, um, my father is a, I just lost him. He, he passed away about three weeks ago and he was an amazing, he was amazing at a lot of things, but he was an amazing cook chef. And what he liked to cook more than anything was Italian food. Um, so because of that, I've sort of fallen in love with Italian wines and of all things, Nick, you know, I, I'm, I'm partial to Pinot Grigio, just a yeah. nice, crisp, dry white wine, <laughs> especially if it's really hot and we're at the Broadmoor uh, eating pizza at that restaurant that you and I fell in love with, uh, <laughs> that, that's what I like to snuggle up with. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. I, 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 I like to top off a day with a cocktail. But with a, if you're with Sean, you're going to have some wine and there's nothing wrong with that, too. He'll pick you a good one. <laughs> It's a little bit classier, Nick. I think like that's the classy route, though. <laughs> your other hobby, too. I think the listeners like, aren't you a car guy, Sean? I am, Nick. I, I, I have an, a, I probably have an addiction. My, my wife likes to tease me. I, I think she t- keeps track of it. Um, but I've now I, the last car I bought, which was not long ago, is my 127th car. Holy moly. Wait, so do you have, like, how many do you currently have? Because I assume when you purchase them, you restore them and sell them or get rid of that. Like, how many do you currently own at this moment? Seven. Uh, But I'm, but I am, I'm old now, uh, Cassandra. So when you get to be a certain age, um, I've, I've, I always wanted to collect cars. So I've, I've just sort of begun. So, um, so I, I won't have a crazy collection, but I'll probably end up with 10 or 12 that, that are important to me. I What's think some fan? people would say that's a crazy collection. <laughs> <laughs> well, not when you really get into it. I can tell you that. Yeah, no, you get the crazy collectors. Yeah. What's your, uh, what's the favorite car you've owned out of that 127? 
Um, I have a, a Ferrari F12 Berlinetta, which is just an amazing car. The, the thing that is sort of the bite in the rear end is the more you drive it, the less value it, valuable it becomes. But I just kind of said the hell with it, Nick. I'm driving this thing. I, I like it. And uh, and it's 740 horsepower and zero to 60 in 2.9 seconds and 211 miles an hour top speed. And and it just it makes me smile every time I drive it. I'm very, very lucky to have. To, Do you to, let the boys drive it? I've I have offered it to them because to me, it's, you know, as much as I love it, it's a car and you can go get another one. Um but they 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 haven't done it yet. Ha. I know. Thank God. Yeah, I was gonna say. I don't know. I might be afraid of it myself. I'd have to see. Actually, I don't even know if I'd fit in it. But that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> you would. You would. Our producer just looked at me and goes, "Can he adopt me? I would <laughs> happily drive that car." <laughs> How bad can a guy be that likes sports cars and Pinot Grigio? For God's sakes. Yeah. No. Wow. You know what? It's good in golfer. I mean, you kind of hit all the marks of a, a true golf guy. I know, I know. I've got, I've well, got all of the vices, few of, not as many of the virtues, I guess. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you coming on and educating. You know, our whole goal through this podcast is to. I, I love the personalities that I've met in this business, and it's it's meant so much the fabric of where I've gotten today and where Club Champions got today. And you know, part of the goal was to bring these these people to life for our listeners, and maybe even get behind the scenes of a little bit more than just talking about product all the time. So I really appreciate you coming on and not only talking about product, but sharing some personal stories and uh, letting our listeners see what Sean Toulon's all about. Well, uh, thanks, you guys. Nick, I've really enjoyed our friendship. I'm I'm just in awe of what you've been able to create with, and I mean that, with Club Champion. And, um, you know, it was a great idea at a perfect time, and I can't wait to see where it goes. Thanks, Sean. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sean. All right, Cassandra. Thank you. Have a great day, guys. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Fits with the Founder. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to support the show. And if you want more equipment content, follow Club Champion on Instagram.